Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Zayla robbery, Ba'aveda, and lost and found. Pedic Shlosh also, chapter 13 of this sequence. And today, we continue within the section of the lost and found laws. And as I explained earlier, and as we learned earlier, the mitzvah to return a lost object, a found object to its rightful owner, is a mitzvah that is possibly one of the most difficult mitzvahs in the Torah. It is very time-consuming, it is very energy-consuming, it's a full-time job. People would just rather make believe they don't see it. And if they do that, they're performing, they're transgressing a, a terrible sin. Which is why we know that this mitzvah is given only for family. And every Jew is the family of every other Jew. Because otherwise, it's not the norm. People don't do this in the world. It's impossible. And if you are wondering exactly why, let's look at the laws here. If somebody finds a lost item, which he's obligated to return, meaning it has some type of identifying sign. And this is an entire chapter, an entire section in the Talmud. He's obligated to make announcements about it, to publicize it. Today they would say, you post it on the website. But I think in the time of the Mishnah, it was before Al Gore invented the computer. He has to announce, and to put the word out there. And to say, if anybody lost this and this, let him come, let him describe the object, let him take it. So for example, he says, did anybody lose a car? But he doesn't say what brand. Then the guy comes and says, I lost a Mercedes. He says, sorry, I found a Ford Pinto. So you have to give description. And here the Rambam points out something very interesting. We learned repeatedly that when we deal with economic laws, the object has to have a minimum value of a pruta, which was the lowest coin, the lowest denominational coin at the time. What if at the time he found it, it was worth a pruta, but then that particular commodity slid in value, now it's worth less than that? It doesn't matter. We're concerned about what it was worth at the time he found it. He's obligated to announce it and publicize it. Now, how do they announce it? How do they publicize it? Well, the HQ, the headquarters, the center of the Jewish people during the time that the Holy Temple stood was Jerusalem. Because everybody would come sooner or later to the Holy Temple, especially during the major festivals. So therefore he tells us, there was a large stone, like a public square. This large stone outside of Jerusalem, like a, uh, a stage in a public square, a large stone. That was the stone, the rock that was used for public announcements. People would go up there, and traditionally, when the populace was in Jerusalem, this fellow would go up and says, I found, and so on and so forth. I found the laptop. Anybody lost a laptop? And so on. Now the question is, how exactly does he announce? Because, you know, you can give too much information away, and you can give too little information away. And as we will see, the law was very concerned with, I'll use a modern word, conmen. The law was very concerned with thieves who would make a living saying they lost things. What did they lose? Whatever you found, that's what I lost. Yes, that color. How is the announcement made? If you found money, he has to announce, I found currency. What kind of currency? You tell me. What did you lose? And so also, he announces, anybody lost a garment? I found a garment. That's the extent of the identification. Money, a garment. An animal, I found an animal. Oh, good, I lost a cap. I found a tarantula. A stories or notes. What kind of note? Yahweh, the Yitin Simonim, let him come and give identifiable marks. The Yitin, let him take. This is important because we don't want to give the found item to the wrong guy. Anybody lose money? Everybody's hand goes up. And he should not be suspicious and concerned. Because when he told them he lost clothes, he found clothing, he found an animal, he's giving too much information away, he's not. Because he doesn't actually return the item to the guy who claims to have lost it. Until he gives clear, distinctive signs. And as we will learn, there are three categories of identification in law. One of them is, we'll start with the best. I'll use the Hebrew. Simonim muvhokim beyoser. Extra distinctive signs. This is the best. Extremely distinctive marks, for example. It's a document. And there's a hole next to a particular letter in the document. Oh, you can't beat that. This is considered proof of identity, even according to Torah law, because you can't get clearer than that. Then there is what is called simonim muvhokim, distinctive signs. In other words, if somebody gives the weight of the object, he says, I lost this and this, you know, I'll tell you how much it weighs. That's pretty good. Or the measure. I'll, I'll tell you the length and width. Dimensions. These are considered proof. But it's average proof, medium proof. And there's a difference of opinion whether this is considered biblical law proof or only rabbinic law proof. And finally, there's what we call the C, identity, the bottom of the totem pole, Simonim Geruim, bad signs. 
the least desirable type of identifiable signs. In other words, for example, the color of an object, or if it was small or large, these are not necessarily proof. Well, it was bluish and biggish. You know, a lot of things are bluish and biggish. Okay. So therefore, we need clear signs. When the Rambam says here we need clear signs, he's talking about the middle of the road, distinctive signs. So for example, the weight is wonderful, the measurements is terrific, dimensions and so on. What if the person who claims to have lost the object came and gave level C identity information? He says it was bluish and biggish. We do not restore it to him. We need clearer signs than that. Someone who is suspected of being dishonest. Ramai is a crook. How do we know he's a crook? He's got a big sign on his forehead. I am a crook. Even though he gave clear signs, we do not give it back to him. Because crooks know how to give signs. Why? They do their research. You don't restore it when the guy has a reputation of being dishonest. Today they say that when somebody takes someone to court, you give him a fair trial, unless he is litigious, unless he takes everybody to court. If he takes everybody to court, you've got to look with seven eyes. He has to bring witnesses that says, this guy owned this object. The witnesses have to be reliable, kosher witnesses. Our sages gave a wonderful interpretation. The verse says, you hold on to the lost and found item until your brother will demand it. Meaning, he has to bring clear, distinctive signs. Say our sages, could have another interpretation. Until your brother is investigated. Somebody comes and says the object is his. Check him out. Check him out, go on to Google and see what it says about him. Because you have to find out if he is dishonest, if not, because you don't want to give a lost and found item to the first con man who says he lost it. There are certain people who lost everything. Valid for, but you in the beginning, once upon a time, anybody who lost an object, and came and gave its identifying marks. They would give it back. The only time they wouldn't is if he was an established, dishonest person. However, as time went on, con men became prolific. They were all over the place. Everybody is stealing. So what do you know? People used to hang out by that stage by that stone, and every announcement, they lost it, they would do research. Iskinu Bezna, so our sages ordained, shall you aim them lay, that you say to people, have aid him, bring witnesses that you're not a crook, meaning, bring me character witnesses. Repel, and then I will give it to you because you gave distinctive marks. Without character witnesses, I'm not giving you nothing, nothing, honey. Hey, Hasimonim, Amuvokim, reliable distinctive signs, Senchen and we rely upon them. We've done an and we judge according to these signs, not only in lost and found matters, which we see have very intricate laws, it gets more complicated than this. But furthermore, it is applicable every place in every aspect of Torah. For example, what if someone disappears? Okay, the person just vanishes. Missing person. And then they find a corpse. But the corpse is uh, difficult to recognize. Swollen from the ocean and so on and so forth. So you need distinctive marks. Before you can allow the heirs to go into the estate and inherit the estate. Before you can allow the wife to remarry. Because maybe the husband will show up next week. And he wasn't the corpse after all. So distinctive marks are an issue in other places of law as well. To give the clear measurements of something. The weight of something. The number of something. How many? I lost dollars. How many dollars did you lose? 237. Well, I found 236. Sorry, it's not yours. Simonian These are clear, distinctive signs. My father, of blessed memory, used to tell this wonderful story. It's a funny story. You have to have a sense of humor to appreciate the story, though. I appreciate it. Anyway, there was this missing person who disappeared, and he was gone for a long time, and his wife was very interested in establishing the fact that he is not alive anymore so she could be married and go on with her life, which, unfortunately, was a very common occurrence back then. And it happens today as well. They, some, a tragedy happens. They're searching for bodies because you need closure. So there was a corpse that was found, but it was very hard to identify the corpse, the corpse because a lot of time had gone by and a lot of stuff occurred to the corpse. So they called a the woman to court. She comes with a friend of hers, and they say, did your husband have any distinctive marks on his body? Can you, is there anything unique about him that you can describe? So she thought, and she said, yes, I got it. I said, what is it? She said, my husband stuttered. <laughs> her friend is laughing. She finds it hilarious. The court, the judge says, miss, I see you're laughing because your friend said her husband stuttered. Can you tell me the joke? Why are you laughing? She says, why am I laughing? She thinks her husband is the only one who stuttered. That was one of my dad's favorite stories. So, you know, we need distinctive marks. Stuttering is not a good distinction for a corpse. <laughs> Vav. If anybody thinks that was insensitive, I apologize. But, you know. Vav. Vav. And now what happens is two people come. Zenos and Simon Yahweh. One guy gives a description of the lost and found item. Zenos and Simon Yahweh. The other guy gives a description. And they are precise. Commission also not exact them all. 
Same description. Mitsuyan, excellent. The problem is two people gave the same description to one lost item. So you don't know who's honest, who's dishonest, and what's the story. What should you do? The answer is you do nothing. Layitan, he should not give it to not to this one, but not to the other one. What should you do with it? As I told you, lost and found is a full-time job. Ad Elotiyamunachas, let it sit by the finder. Ad Shiyeda Hoechel Bechaberi, until one confesses. And he says, I lied. A Yasa bin Amshara, or they'll say, listen, let's not be stupid. Let's go 50-50. Otherwise, you can't let it go. What if one guy gave the identifying distinctive signs? And the other guy brought witnesses that says, hey, he once had an item like this and he lost it. Witnesses are preferable to distinctive signs. Let him give it to the guy who brought witnesses. What if one guy gives, one person gives distinctive signs? And the other gave distinctive signs as well. Plus, he also brought a witness. The problem is he only brought one witness. In total, law, we need how many witnesses? Two witnesses. He brought one. Now we know, what is, what is the value of one witness? The value of one witness is it establishes some preliminary level of reality. However, here, we already have our own reality. They gave distinctive signs. So we don't need a preliminary reality. You may believe that the single witness is never showed up. It's like he's not. And let it sit. But what if he found the garment? All right, let's talk serious. What if he found a very expensive mink coat? So it's worth thousands of dollars. We're not talking about some schmata from Mervyn's all over One person says, it's mine. Here are witnesses. This guy wove this for me. Here's the mink producer. He made it for me. His name is Mink. And the other one brought witnesses that... They lost the object. One brought witnesses that the manufacturer manufactured for him. The other brought witnesses that he lost the object. I was walking with the guy and I saw he lost his mink. Let him give it to the one who brought witnesses that the item fell, that the item was lost. What if one guy gives the length of the measure, the measure of its length? The other guy gives the width. One guy says it's two feet long. The other guy says it's 18 inches wide. Give it to the guy who gives the length. Because the width can be guesstimated just by visually looking. When the owner of the object is wearing it, you can guess the width. One guy, one person gives length and width. The other one gives the weight of the object. Why would you need to know the weight of the object? For UPS? You give it to the guy who knows the weight. Because it's more unusual for people to know the weight. One guy gave the length and the width. The measurements. And the other guy gave the measure of the fringes at the end of the garment. Length and width is preferable to fringes. In the beginning, anybody who found a lost item, would announce it over three major holidays. We know that the Jewish people went to Jerusalem. Pesach, Passover, Shavuos, and Sukkot. These are the three holidays. He would have to come each holiday. I mean, the Jewish men were supposed to be there anyway. Each of the holidays. And he would go up to the stage, the rock, and he would announce it. Rabbi Orisha, the first festival. Amen. He would say, Rishay, this is the first announcement. Shani, the second announcement. He would say, Shani, this is the second announcement. Shlishi, the third one. Machristan, he would not get any identifying a, a, a statement as to which announcement this is. Why? Because Shani in Hebrew sounds very similar to Shlishi. Because they, they both begin with a Shin and end with a Yud. We don't want the hearers, the listeners, to confuse second and third. Why? Because we expect the person who thinks he might have lost that object to run home and then come back. But he has to hear second or third, because if it's second, he knows the guy will be around one more holiday. After the third or the last holiday, seven days later, he announces the fourth time. Commentaries say, some commentaries say, seven days later, the third announcement is the beginning of the holiday. Seven days later, on the eighth day, is the end of the holiday. Not that he has to stay an extra seven days, because he's got things to do, places to go, and people to see. In order that the one who heard the announcement will have time to run home, how long will it take? It takes the average Jew who comes from maximum distance, three days, and check his closets, check his, his possessions, and come back in three days, and one day to check. So therefore it is the seventh day. Now, what I just said was wrong, because I said the furthest point is three days, although many Jews live more than three days from Jerusalem, our sages took an average rather than making somebody move there. So that was a correction of my earlier statement. We learned that from the laws of rain. Okay. Tess, here's an interesting law. Nine. Once the Holy Temple was destroyed, where do you announce when people don't come to Jerusalem three times a year anymore, and you can't go up to the big stage on the stone and announce? They ordained that people would make announcements in their own neighborhood. In the synagogues and houses of Torah study. That's where you announce. Because that's where people hang out. You know, these days, to, to this day, you walk into a synagogue, you have a bulletin board. 
People come over to me all the time. Did anybody find the key? Did anybody find? I lost. I left a million dollars. Anybody find a million dollars? They always come for a million dollars. You know that. But just yesterday, somebody came and said, "I found the key. Where should I put it?" I said, "Put it on my podium." Half hour later, somebody comes to me distraught. I lost the key. I said, "Describe it." What's the length? The width? The weight? Teeth? No, I said, "On the podium." <laughs> In order to miracle. Okay. Now, and this is why I said it's interesting. There were the sharkers, the bullies. This refers to a period in the Persian king's times when the Persian government legislated a very interesting legislation because they were looking to increase the income. They wanted to raise taxes. So they had a meeting, as they used to say when I was a kid, all the congressmen all the congressmen got together in Persia and they decided that if anybody has a lost and found object, the king will keep it. Who needs to announce it? Give it to the government. We all know they said, all lost and found items belong to the king. His kingdom, so our sages ordained, would be a pretty stupid thing to make public announcements because that will just enrich the king's coffers who is taking stuff illegally. So they ordained that people should inform their neighbors and the people they know, as we say today, only the people in their nine-digit zip code. By the way, if you don't know your nine-digit zip code, this is your homework. Go find out. What if you announced it or he proclaimed? And now what happens is the plot thickens. It's very nice when people come and say, we lost it. One person, ten people. What do you do? What don't you do? What if you announced it and nobody came? What do you do now? You know, I got a life to live. I can't devote the rest of my life taking care of your object, especially if it needs to eat. Let the object be in the belongings, in the possession of the finder. Until Elijah the prophet comes. It says when Elijah the prophet will come to announce Mashiach is here, Elijah will also answer all the difficult questions that we were not able to answer. This is when it says in the Gemara very often, when there's no answer, the Gemara says, Teku. What does Teku mean? In the simple terms it means, I don't know. It means no answer. But it is an acrostic for Tishbi. Eliyahu is known as Eliyahu Tishbi. Eliyahu Tishbi. Tishbi. Yitaritz, Kushius, Vabayas. Eliyahu, the Tishbi, meaning Elijah the prophet, when he comes, will give all the answers to all the unknown questions. So there's going to be a big line around the block, and everyone's going to say, So what do I do with this object? I've been watching it for 2,000 years. And as long as he has the lost item, you know what? He's also responsible. If it was stolen or lost, he's responsible. Why? Because he's considered, according to the Rambam, like a shomer socher, like a paid daily. According to others, he's considered an unpaid daily, so his responsibilities are less. The Rambam says he's paid. But if an out of control issue happens, for example, a robbery, the guy comes in with a gun, he says, stick it up, Potter, then he's exempt. According to the theory of the Rambam, a person who's guarding a lost and found object is like a paid daily. Why? Who's paying him? The answer is God is paying him. How do we know? Well, I'll tell you something, says the Rambam. There's a rule. When somebody's occupied doing a mitzvah, he's exempt from another mitzvah. So that's his payment. He's not bothered. For example, says somebody's doing a mitzvah, and somebody comes to him and says, I need money. Uh, after I finish doing my mitzvah, I'll give you whatever. For example, we're teaching a class here. I'm teaching a class here. We're learning together. What if somebody comes and says, I need money? Should we stop learning and give that person money? It's not right because we're doing a mitzvah afterwards, unless it's life and death and so on. So the guy who is watching a found item is occupied with God's commandment. So he can actually exempt himself from stuff that is really. Bothering him and, 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 and taking his time. They should wait to become a mitzvah. He's exempt from many positive commandments. As long as he's actively engaged. Now, the question, this is not a simple thing, but this is the Rambam's reasoning why he's considered like a paid baby. Now, it's not so simple. Not every object that you find can you just put away in a drawer somewhere and forget about it. As he used to say when I was a kid, forget about it. You have to visit the object. How are you doing this object? Well, the bottle, you got to check it out. In order that it not get ruined. And disappear. Because different objects have different issues. For example, you take a wool object and you put it away, the moths will leave it. You ever hear moths? When I was a kid, we had a lot of mothballs. What does the mothballs do? It puts poison out there. The moth don't like it, and neither did I. as it says, you should return it to him. As we say in French, pay attention. Pay attention. You have to invest effort to return it. Kate for example. Moths exclusive center. If he found it inexpensive or inexpensive, could be from Bloomingdale's, Nordstrom, or could be from Sears. He found the garment of wool. Once in 30 days, he has to air it out, to shake it out. Why? Because it shouldn't become stale. He shouldn't bang it with a stick, because you can kill it. He shouldn't even say to his friend, hey, come, help me air this out. Because with two people pulling and bugging, it can rip it. He just does it gently on his own. Or he lays it out over a couch. Not because it's gorgeous and I have company. But because it needs to get aired out. He should not selfishly benefit from doing it. He shouldn't lay it out over his couch when his best friend is coming. He can show it off. And in fact, if he has guests, he should not lay it out before them. Even for its need, because you never know the guest. Maybe the guest is a thief. 
I always say, yeah, guests, check your silverware. Make sure no one's taking silverware, even if you're using plastic. I'm just kidding. We only have honest guests in our nine digits of code. Yud bays, moths are cleates. What if he finds wooden, he finds wooden utensils? So the Rambam tells us that wooden utensils, unless you use them, they're going to rot. Mishnah should use them, Kedesh Yudkobu, in order that they not rot, they not decay. Klein Cheshus, what about copper utensils? You have to use those as well. Mishnah Mishnah should use them, Mechamin even Rahat, even with heat. Avaloi al Yudai but not with fire. Why? Mitnei Shemashchikam, because it will wear them down. Klein Kesef, what about silver utensils? Also use them. Mishnah Mishnah Mishnah, but only with cold. Why not with hot? Avaloi Bechamin, because not with hot. Because Mitnei Shemashchikam, because it will blacken them. Discolored. Tarnished, as we say. Much of my greatest Mikhail Dumais, what if he finds rakes or hatchets? Mishnah 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 should use them with soft objects. Avaloi Bechamin, he shouldn't use them with hard objects. Mitnei Shemashchikam, because he'll diminish them in value. Now we get to the top of the line. Motor clays off if he finds golden utensils. and crystal, fine glass utensils. or fine linen garments. This is the top of the line stuff. And he shouldn't touch them. He shouldn't even think of using them. Because to quote Alfredo, this is very, very expensive. Then Eliyahu will tell you who it is, and it'll be just fine, because that's what's unique about these materials. They are forever. Just as we said with regard to lost objects, under the same law applies to the Rambam with an object that was given to someone to watch, to Guard, suddenly the guy who gave it to me says, Listen, do me a favor, watch my object for a week. Suddenly he disappears, he had to go overseas on an urgent matter. Overseas back then could be a year. Now, what if he finds books? What's the deal with books? Now, we know that books age. On the other hand, books rip. He should read them once in 30 days just to get some air in there. What if he's a person who doesn't know how to read? We should look at the pictures. What if there's no pictures? He just like, scroll, moves the scroll, rolls the scroll every 30 days. You gotta get air in there. Not air out. You should never study that object, that subject, with somebody else's book. First lesson, because the first lesson people learn, we're told, they jump and they fidget and they hock and they get, and you rip it. Then be careful. And you shouldn't read a portion of the Yishnah and repeat it again. You shouldn't read a portion and translate. And you shouldn't open more than three columns, I guess, or pages. You shouldn't have two people reading two subjects, because then they're pulling all over the place. This one will pull, the other one will pull, and the book will just fall apart. Two people can read one subject. Three people should not read in one book. Even one subject. So here we see that you have to do something with the books. I have to get it out, but not too much. Interestingly, just to slightly go off the subject, the Rebbe often spoke about having books, Jewish books, Torah books, books of Jewish content, that's one of his ten, ten mitzvah campaigns. Bias Moli Svarim, that our home should be filled with Jewish books. Said the Rebbe, and I want to make a comment, and the Rebbe said this often. He says, you walk into some people's houses, their books are gorgeous. I mean, unbelievable. You can't use the books. So somebody says, the Rebbe said, wait a minute, I'll use the books, they'll get ripped. They'll get torn. Said the Rebbe, good. That's a sign of success. So you'll buy new ones. You have to use books. Because that's the only way you acquire wisdom. So here we have the mitzvah, your house should be filled with books, but not too gorgeous. You gotta use the books. Okay, back to the text. Very interesting law 14. What's filling? What if he finds a pair of film? He can estimate how much these film cost, or he can ask a scribe, give me a price on these film, and he can use them for himself. And he knows if the guy comes, he's got to pay him $100 or $500. Why should Dover Motsi, who be on Akhel? Because film is something everybody has, and the price is pretty average. Film is not a piece of art, but there is a mitzvah, and therefore, it's film. What's the big deal? Now, the commentaries say that was then. Now, <laughs> now, it depends how the film look. Who wrote the portions? Was he a God fearing person? Did you know him? Does he have a reputation? So, film could range anywhere today from a low of Bargain, bargain, kosher film, $250, $275. This is what we call starter film, bar mitzvah film. And it could range into the many thousands of dollars, depending upon who did it and who made it. Therefore, today, it's questionable as to whether this law would apply. Today, film is not film. Today, it's very much differing in value. The plot thickens. What if you find something that is alive? It's living and breathing. The problem with finding something that's alive is you also have to feed it. How do you feed an object that was found? You can go bankrupt. Imagine you find somebody's grizzly bear. They eat a lot. So, the law is interesting. If it's something that works and eats, if it's a working animal, like a cow or a bull, they work. They're, they're field animals. A donkey. A donkey is a trucker. 
says you've got to deal with this object for 12 months from the day of finding it. So if you found it on January 1st, you've got to go till next January 1st. Well, who's going to pay for feeding this animal? Well, you rent them out. And you take the money. And you use the income to buy food. Like I have nothing else to do in my life than to take care of your animal and rent it out and feed it. That's what I said. This is a tough mitzvah. Not simple. And what if the rent, thank God, is greater, the income is greater than the cost of food? Because I buy my food in Costco. The owner gets to keep the overage. Huh. So I'm working hard for the owner. And similarly speaking, chickens. Anybody ever find a bunch of chickens? Once I found it in my freezer. And we can sell the eggs and feed the chickens for 12 months. What happens when 12 months come and go? It can't be from that point on. Shom Demeyam Olav, he gets an estimate for the value of the animal or the chickens. And now, after 12 months, he's in a partnership with the owner. Like any other person who estimates the value of an animal, he takes care of it, and then he gets a percentage of the profits. That's if there are profits. Where he finds calves or ponies? And they go out in pasture, so they basically feed themselves. Allah says, you care for them for three months. If the owner doesn't come in three months, you did yours. What if he finds animals that have to be fed? 30 days. What if he finds large geese or roosters? Thirty days. If he found small ones, and anything whose trouble is greater than income, three days. Because listen, I have a life too. I can't devote my life to taking care of your kachkis. That means uh, geese and, and uh, ducks and geese. From three days on, what does he do with them? He goes to the court under court supervision and he sells them. He puts them up on Craigslist and he sells them. All right, on eBay. But so also produce, you know, produce has a very short shelf life. And the produce begins to rot. What good is it going to do? I'm going to hold your produce. You're going to have rotten produce. And I'm going to have a lot of worms. He sells them under court supervision. You're saying, okay, I sold them. I asked him, what does he do with the money? Aha, I'm glad you asked. The money has to go to the finder. The finder holds on to the money. He can use the money for investment purposes and so on. Stocks, bonds, securities. Well, pizza. The peak of therefore, if something out of his control happened, he from Gaius, like an invading army took the money. They should by they sunk to the bottom of the sea. He was crossing the LA River and they sunk. To the bottom of the LA River, that's dangerous. Chayav Lishalom, he has to pay. He didn't use it. He could have used it. It becomes like a loan, like a borrowed object. Now, this sounds exciting. Money? I could use? Wow, no. Only if you sold produce that was about to rot, you could use that money. But, because you took the trouble to slip it to the court and get court supervision and so on. But money that was found, lost and found money, you can't use somebody else's money. The people, therefore, in Ogdebainis, if they were lost by accident, but he's exempt, because he is a paid bailiff, was exempt from accidents, as we explained. You test now. What about all the days that he's busying himself with a found item before he sells them in court? And he fed these animals or what have you. Who ends up paying for that? That's very expensive. If he used his money, when the, loss, when, when, when the guy who lost the object comes along and identifies that he's ready to take it, he says, by the way, you owe me. And he gives him a bill. The Yerali says, now does he have to take an oath in court if the guy says, are you crazy? Does he have to swear? Said the Rambam, it appears to me, and the Rambam uses that expression whenever this is his opinion, because it's a hotly debated subject, because ordinarily he would have to take an oath. Because who can believe these people? Here said the Rambam, it appears to me, he takes without an oath. Why? This is one of the ordinances that was established in order to make the world run smooth. Otherwise, no one will ever want to pick up a lost object. So therefore, I say, you say, we're not going to make you take an oath. What's so terrible about an oath? Because as we did learn, and as we will learn, oaths are very serious business. If a person takes a false oath, it's a terrible, terrible sin. Therefore, there were certain people who hesitated to take even oaths that were true. They said, I'd rather pay. I don't want to take an oath holding a Torah, it's, it's scary. So I'm not going to, it's not worth $12 for me to take an oath. Or 40 cents. In fact, I'd rather just leave your object there. Said our sages, no oath. You can submit your bill and you have to get paid. Remember, only when the expenses did not reach the value. When the expenses reach the value, you got to get rid of it. Remember, we learned that. Closing paragraph. Says that Abba Mabit Samitia, therefore, if somebody finds an object, La Yeshava, he does not have to take an oath. They take in order to make the world run better. Shema Taiba Yeshava, because if you say he does have to take an oath, Yanicha Mitsia, every normal person will just walk by and make believe he never saw it. The Yelachoy and keep walking. Kadesh La Yeshava, in order that he shouldn't have to take an oath. 
even though he's violating a mitzvah, which says, don't close your eyes. Even if he found a wallet, he found a purse. You know, everybody likes to find a purse. And the owner of the purse says, you know something, this is my purse. I gave you the signs, but you know what? There was another purse attached to it. There were two purses tied to one another, and I want my other purse. It's impossible, you should only find one. You must have found the other, and you took the other, and you're a thief. So now you go from a good guy to a thief. You know, it's not easy. No good deed goes unpunished. Halacha says, even here, he does not have to take an oath because we do want people to observe this very trying mitzvah of lost and found. End of chapter 13. Rambam Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Gzela, robbery, Aveda, and lost and found. Aveda literally means lost. Hedek Arba, also chapter 14, we have segued a while back into the laws of lost and found. The Rambam here refers to a verse in the Torah. And actually, in the Mosnaim Rambam, he brings down this verse. It's from Dvorim, chapter 22. Verse 1 to 3, do not watch your brother's ox or sheep going astray and ignore them. Again, as mentioned earlier, it's a tough mitzvah. You've got to stop what you're doing and dedicate up to a year dealing with somebody else's lost object. Back to the text, etc., dot, 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 return them to him. And the verse goes on, this is what you must do to his donkey and to his garment and to all lost articles that your brother will lose and you will find. So the big question here is, why do we specify certain objects and not others? Like donkey and garment. There are many other objects he could have talked about. He could have said horse, mule, candelabra. Gold, silver, I don't know, stocks, bonds, securities. So he says, Hasimla Bechlau, the garment which he does mention was in the general category of the general statement called Avidasachicha, anything your brother might lose. I say it was. Vechain, and similarly speaking, mentioned earlier in the verse, Hasher, Vehaseh, Vechamer. He mentions ox, or sheep, or donkey. Vilama, Porak, Akosuk, Chamer. Why does the Torah enumerate these animals? Why donkey? Lahachzirei, Bissimone, Mardas. To tell us that if somebody, as we learned earlier, specifies a unique sign, a unique identifying mark, not on the donkey, but on the saddle of the donkey, or on the cushion of the donkey. Even though the identifying mark was on something secondary to the donkey itself, like a saddle or a cushion. In other words, he says, on the cushion, or on the pack that's on that donkey, there was a red mark. So the question is, who says that that was the saddle, or that was the donkey? Who says that was the saddle or the cushion that was on that donkey? Maybe the saddle was lent out to someone. Maybe the cushion was taken. How do we know it's the same donkey? Nevertheless, Yahzir, we have to assume it is and return it even though the marking, the distinct marking, is on something secondary to the donkey. So that's why he enumerates donkey. Why ox and sheep? Because he enumerates ox and sheep to tell us that somebody has to return. Even the wool that was shorn off the sheep. And compared to a sheep, the wool is almost insignificant. Compared to an ox, the wool from the ox's tail, the hair from the ox's tail, is almost insignificant. Even though it is a seemingly minuscule matter, insignificant, still it has to be returned. So that is why we enumerate donkey, in case the distinct mark was on the cushion. Ox, in case, he says, I don't have to return the ox tail hairs. Yes, you do. In case, with sheep, he says, I don't have to return the shearings. He says, yes, you do. Why does he specify a garment? Lil made me mental to learn from it. Just as a garment is unique, because almost every garment has distinct markings. And you can assume that when people lose a garment, people are going to go look for it. Garments are not just forgotten. In other words, if you lose an ox, you see one ox, you see them all. Very difficult to distinguish an ox. Very difficult to distinguish a donkey. What are you going to say? My donkey answers by the name Moshe. Hey, Moshe. It's not so simple. A garment. Oh, every garment is distinct. The high of the house, he has to return it. A cold over. So also we learn the general rule here that anything and everything, she actually see one that has distinct markings. We can safely assume that people are looking for it, meaning they didn't despair to find it. The high of the house, they have to return it. Abel, however, from here we learn that something that does not have anybody looking for it. Why? Because they have no hope of ever finding it. And the owners gave up. Finders, keepers. Even though it has marks of distinction. But the fellow who lost it gave up ever finding it because he lost it in a place that there's no hope of ever finding it. So this is why he specifies, the Torah specifies these various items. Now the Rambam gives us a general rule. This is the rule when it comes to lost and found laws. 
anything that has a distinct marking. Being that it was lost. And the owner knows it was lost. I'm sorry, I said this wrong. Let's start again. Two. This is the rule. Cold over shame by semen, something that does not have distinct markings. Keep a show that it was lost. The other one by a bottom show and the owner knows it was lost. Then you can safely assume that the owner gave up hope. For example, somebody lost a quarter. Someone lost a five dollar bill. How are you ever going to find your five dollar bill? There's no distinct mark on it. What are you going to say? It has Abraham Lincoln's picture? They all do. Kigain, for example. Masmid Echon. Somebody loses one nail. A machat or a needle. Achas, one. A mate or a coin. There's no identifying sign. A nail is a nail, a needle is a needle, and a coin is a coin. Therefore, if this was lost in a place that has lots of people, whoever finds it can keep it. However, anything that has an identifying distinguishing mark. For example, simla, a garment. A garment has an identifying distinguishing mark. Sometimes an animal will as well. For example, you can have a brand or you can have a unique characteristic of a particular body part. You can safely assume that the owner did not despair to find it. Because the mind is depending upon finding it. Litan Simone, that he'll give distinctive markings, which it has, Biasul, and they'll get it back. Therefore, he'll keep looking for it. But Fikal Defa Hamid say, what who finds it? Chayav Lahachis must go up to that unique place which they had in Jerusalem on top of the rock and announce, I found a garment. Can you identify it? Elim Kain, unless Yoda, he knew for sure. Shinis Yashua Baolim, that the owners did give up hope. Kigain, for example, Shemma Isa Lehman, he heard the owner say, Vaile Chesarin Kiyas, woe is to the loss that I had. Or Kiyasa did what I may lose, or something similar. Shemarin, where they show with their words, Shinis Yashua, that they have despaired from ever finding it. That Object, if it's found, can be kept by anybody who finds it. Because once someone despairs of ever finding something, it belongs to the finder. If he found something that does have a distinctive mark, however, he finds it in a place that no one ever expects to find something. For example, beyond, somebody loses something in the sea. Somebody went into the ocean, he swam deep into the ocean, and his uh, ring fell off. <laughs> You're going to find a ring deep in the ocean. Or in a place where the majority of the population are not Jews. They're idol worshippers or what have you. What's the big deal? What's the difference? The difference is very simple. That most of the people in this world, people who are not Jewish, do not by and large practice this difficult practice of taking someone's object and making yourself a shriga until you return it. This is unique. So therefore, if the majority of people are not Jewish, they're not going to bother with it. You're just going to keep it. They said in Newark, where I grew up, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. That's uh, unique to Newark. Just kidding. Okay. So when there is a majority of non-Jews who say finders, keepers, that's normal. We can safely assume that the owners gave up hope. Being men from never finding it, be from the moment it fell. Well, therefore, if someone does find it, then the person who finds it is a keeper. Even though they didn't hear clearly the message that the owners gave up hope, but here, the situation, the setting, the environment in which it was lost, by definition means that the owner will give up hope. Now comes a big debate in the Talmud between Abaya and Rabbah. What if somebody loses an article? He's not aware that he lost it. But had he been aware, he would despair of finding it. When the owner of an article does not know of the loss, I feel the big semen, even if the object has no distinctive mark whatsoever. But there's no way you can ever find it. But he doesn't know he lost it yet. Ain't a yish. This is not called yish. And by the way, as he brings down here in the notes, there is a general rule. Whenever there is a difference of opinion in the Talmud between Abaya and Rava, the Talmud always follows Rava's opinion. And parenthetically, it is said that you cannot go three pages in the entire Talmud where you don't find the names of Abaya and Rava. They were such prolific teachers. So whenever Abaya and Rava disagree, which they always do, you assume that the law follows Rava, except for six situations. These six situations are known by their acrostic, Yael Kagam. Yael Kagam. And the Yud of Yael stands for Yush, Shalomidas, our situation. So Abayah says that Yush, when somebody should give up hope, however, he doesn't know he lost it yet. Even if it's something that he sh- certainly would give up hope, it's not considered Yush. Gates for example, Nothal, if he lost a coin, a valuable coin, he has no idea if he dropped it. Even though when he finds out that it fell, Yishayah, she will give up hope because it has no distinctive mark. After now, it's not considered despairing. And remember, the finder cannot acquire until the loser despairs. He has to wait until the owner will know that it fell. If the owner still say, you know what, maybe I gave it to somebody, maybe I lent it to someone, maybe I left it in a tower or, or, or whatever, in a cabinet. Maybe I made a mistake and I miscalculated. And the bottom line is, he doesn't say, I lost it. Forget it. Or as we say, he It's not considered years. This is years. He should give up hope, but he has no idea that he lost it. 
So the Rambam brings down the Psach Halacha that it follows Abaya Eina Yish. Somebody sees his friend dropped a valuable coin on the ground, but he didn't know about it. And he takes this coin before the other fellow despairs of it. How do you know? He doesn't even know he lost it. Ever al asev al shnei In this scenario, causes the finder to transgress, as we said earlier. One positive commandment and two negative commandments. As we clearly explained earlier, chapter eleven, halachas one and two. Even if he gave him back the dinar after he gave up hope, matana hizu, this would be a gift. Because when he acquired it, he acquired it illegally, transgressing these three mitzvahs. The fact that later he gave up hope, and this guy says, "Oh, let me give it back." Too late. You gave it back. You're a nice guy. You gave him a gift, but you already transgressed. Again, the mechanism here is: before he gives up hope, it's his. That's when you took it. Once he gave up hope, in that case, it's a new reality. Zayin not aladinu lefnei yish. Where somebody takes the coin before the fellow gives up hope, amen aslav zirib with the intent of returning it. Well, achar yish and after he gave up hope, niskaben ligzalei say he then intended to rob it. This is the problem. Originally he took it to return it, then he gave up hope. So he says no, I'm going to rob it. Hey, ben mishum hashit Here his transgression is he did not return it when he was supposed to. Himtin law. What if he waited? He didn't inform the owners that he found it. Like not aladinu, he didn't take the coin. He waited until the owner would be cognizant, would be aware of the fact that it fell. Because once they realize that they lost a coin that has no identifiable signs, they will give up hope. And then he took the coin. The only transgression he commits in this scenario is where the Torah says, you cannot make believe you didn't see it. All this time he's made been making believe you didn't see it while he's watching it. All similar scenarios. If he sees a sella, a particular coin, or any other coin which fell, even dropped by three people. Even though if you divide it by three, it doesn't have a minimum value of a puta. For each one, you have three owners, it has to have at least a minimum value. For each one, still, you have to return it. Maybe the three are partners. In that case, the entity is a partnership. It's not one person or three people, it's one partnership. Perhaps one forgave his part to the other, one bequeathed his part to the other, but in case, so if you have a partnership and two partners give up hope, then the other guy has a puta's worth. Halacha 9 says, what if somebody's colleague saw that he lost a dinar, a valuable coin, in the sand or in the dirt, and then it escaped the vision, it escaped the Awareness of the owner. Falling into the sand or falling into a pile of dirt is like falling into the sea. And ultimately it becomes the possession of the one who finds it. Because when you drop something in a big area of sand or dirt, you give up hope from ever finding it. Because how could you prove that what you found is yours? Maybe somebody else will save theirs. Even though you say, hey, wait a minute. I see this guy went to the store to buy a sifter. He's going to go through all the sand he sees and sift it. His effort is, a, as we say, it's a weak effort. Because there's so much sand and just one coin. He has as much hope as finding it like all the other people who walk around the beach with sifters trying to find precious things. You know, if they, if they invest three days into it, maybe they'll find a quarter. Maybe they'll find other people's stuff. This guy is doing the same thing. He has no particular spot that he knows he dropped it. He thinks maybe it's in this area. It's like you're looking for, for a missing airplane. It's not because nobody gave up hope, but because there is no hope. If somebody finds a seller, a basic coin, in the marketplace, what if his friend finds him? He says, Ooh, you found a coin. Shalihu, it's my coin. I'll prove it to you. It's brand new. It's, it's a coin minted by this in this country. It has a picture of this king on it. I feel the customer, even if he says it has my name scratched onto it. He said nothing. He's not obligated to return it. Why? Because coins do not have distinct markings. You see one coin, you see them all. Even if they do, they don't count. Why? Why don't they count? This is astonishing. I told you the name of the coin, the, 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 the denomination. I told you the king. I told you the year. I showed you my, my initials on it. Of course it's mine. No, it's not. Here's an interesting rule. Because money is used for one purpose, to be spent. So we can very easily say, yes, it was his. It was his. But he spent it. He bought lunch with it. But not from the And somebody else got change and dropped it. So you can't prove it's yours because there was a distinct marking. Because that's what money is used for, spending. By law, we can't rely on this. The guy gave up hope as soon as he lost it. No one will ever believe me that I didn't spend this. Therefore, by, by law, by halacha, it belongs to the finder. If somebody finds something that does not have a distinctive marking, adjacent to, an object, yes, that does. He finds two objects. One has a distinctive marking, and the other doesn't. He's obligated to announce the find. 
What if the guy who gave the distinctive mark, he comes along and he takes his, he identifies the object. This is the only thing he dropped. Then the fellow acquires the object that does not have a distinctive mark. If somebody finds Klicheres, earthenware, an earthenware utensil, or something similar, utensils where you see one, you see them all. Because it's like a coin of coins, they have no distinctive marking. They have no distinctive marking. They don't recognize the challenge. Because nobody knows if this picture, Tzolechius Zu, or this glass, Shalayis his, Eshalachar, or somebody else's. What if somebody comes and says, "I lost my Starbucks coffee cup"? Everybody has a Starbucks coffee cup. But if it was a utensil which is unique to the eye, it's distinctive. Chayav laachis, you have to announce it. Why? Perhaps a Torah scholar who has credibility will come and say, even though he can't give 100% description of its distinctive marking, but he can recognize his coffee cup. Then being that he is a Torah scholar. What's the significance here of a Torah scholar? A person with credibility, we assume that a Torah scholar will have credibility. If the Torah scholar recognized it and said, it's mine, even though by law the markings are not that distinctive, you should give it back. You'd give most 13. What about he qualifies this? When does this apply? To a real, refined Torah scholar, who doesn't, Tell stories. He never changes his words. He's consistently truth-telling. Well, actually, he does sometimes lie. A Torah scholar can lie. You bet. In manners that bring peace to the world. It says that when somebody buys something, and these were the days before you can return things, especially online. Somebody buys something, and they say, do you like my new dress? Even though it's ugly. You look at it, you say, you say it's gorgeous. Why? Because they bought it already. That's called You change the story, you, change, you lie for peace. Or to bring peace between husband and wife. Some people will bring war between husband and jail, which I was concerned about. You know what your wife? Aaron Akohen did the opposite. He lied. He said, your wife said she's sorry. Your husband said he feels bad. So a scholar will change the facts when it's a mitzvah to change the facts. Or with regard to a tractate he's studying, somebody says to him, what tractate are you studying? And I believe the interpretation here is that he doesn't want to take the responsibility to give an answer to a serious halachic question that he's not qualified. So he won't. Or don't ask him if he slept in this in his bed and he doesn't want anybody to know where he slept. Or in the house where he stayed. And here he spells it out. For example, he's engaging in the study of the tractate of Nida, which deals with the laws of menstruation and purity and impurity. And he says, I'm learning laws of mikvah. Why? Because he doesn't want to be asked questions about doubtful issues regarding menstruation. He doesn't want to take responsibility. I believe that's what it means. So he gives a different law. He slept in a particular bed. He said, I slept in the other bed. Perhaps there'll be a stain in that bed and he doesn't want to be connected to it. In the house of a friend by the name of Shimon. Somebody said, where did you stay last night? He's afraid people say, I stayed in Shimon's house before you know it. 20 people will be knocking on Shimon's door. I hear you taking people. Therefore, to keep the peace, we all married to Reuben and his daughter. He said, I stayed by Reuben. Reuben will not let you into his house if you're dying. <laughs> he doesn't want people to bother the person who was nice to him. These are all ways that you can lie. By bringing peace to two people, you change the facts a little bit. To make partners or husband or wife or friends, establish peace again. These are all not only permissible, but in a sense, there's a mitzvah. Maybe a Torah scholar from today to tomorrow, but a witness came and said, This guy is not so credible, and I'm not talking about peacemaking, I'm not talking about all of the above. He's just not credible. And you do not return anything to him just because he says, I recognize it. End of chapter 14. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Gzela, robbery, Va'aveda, and found objects lost and found. Herek Hamish Asar, chapter 15. Now, I do want to point out as we continue with the laws of lost and found that these laws are the very subject of the earlier part of Tractate Baba Metzia. The Mishnah, Mishnayot, the Gemara, the debates. Two people holding a garment. This one says, I found it, I found it. Or the second chapter, These are the found objects a person can keep, and these have to be announced. All of these laws are rooted in Torah law first, in Mishnah, in Talmud, and then the halachic scholars throughout the ages, and we are learning Ramah. Moving right along, anyone who finds a lost object, and we talked about the fact that this is a very tedious mitzvah which the Torah demands of a Jew, not to mind his own business, but to really invest time, effort, and energy, and sometimes money, 
to be able to perform this mitzvah. That's why it's a family mitzvah, every Jewish family. Now, whether this lost and found object has a recognizable sign, a mark of distinction, which we learned about extensively earlier. It does not have a mark of distinction. The fact of the matter is, and this has happened to me so many times, if you find something that looks like it might have been put there intentionally, someone put it there, they hid it there, don't touch it. Perhaps the owner put it there until he comes back for it. So you know what? It's not lost. It's intentional. You're going to go take that object. You know what you're going to do? You're going to cause a lot of heartache. And if he comes to take it, it'll be something that does not have a distinctive mark. The fact that this guy couldn't control himself and he took it. He, he caused the other person to lose money. Because he has no sign. He has no distinct mark. Or even if it has a distinct mark. So the guy is put through the trouble of running and chasing and looking and going to the place where announcements are, make, are made and to give the signs. Why don't you just leave it alone? It's not lost. Therefore, the halacha is also It is forbidden for someone to touch an object that looks like it may have been put there. Until it's clear beyond the shadow of a doubt that he found it because it fell, not because somebody put it there. Even if he's unsure, he doesn't know in if maybe this item is lost and maybe it was intentionally placed there. He's really not sure. It's 50-50. He still better shouldn't touch it because the heartache you're going to cause to someone by touching the item that he placed there is going to be substantial. Better don't touch it. However, if you meant no harm, be a mother you took it. What should you do? Then you think about it. Maybe it was put there. Should you put it back? No. Also, do not put it back. It's forbidden. Why? Because while you had it, that guy went, looked, didn't find it, and now it's all over the place. He's never going to come back and look again. If it has a distinctive mark, then the person can actually acquire it. He does not have to give it back because it does not have a distinctive mark. And we learned earlier that if something does not have a distinctive mark, that's it. It belongs to the finder. However, whether something does have a distinctive mark, whether somebody put it there or it fell, private property, public property, as a person must announce the fines because it has a distinctive mark. Let's talk about what does it mean that somebody might have put it there. It's not random that it just ended up there. Somebody might have put it there. What does putting mean? Today, for example, he found a donkey, a porter or a cow. They are pasturing. They're munching grass on the roadside during daylight. You know what? It's very possible that the owner went into the 7-Eleven and he told his donkey or his cow, Bubele, munch some grass on the side of the road. Who said it's lost? Or he's in a garbage dump. You know, the, one of the best places to hide something is in a garbage dump. Who's going to go look in a garbage dump? This guy, he looks in garbage dumps. He found something in a garbage dump covered with garbage and he uncovered it. And you know what? Chances are someone put it there. Don't touch it. As it says, with regard to lost and found, something gone astray. This object is not gone astray. It's exactly where it was put. Leave the donkey alone, leave the cow alone, leave the golden candlestick alone. Just because it's in the garbage dump, somebody hit it there. Is that always so? No. If you find the donkey, the Caleb Hapuchin and all the stuff on the donkey are upside down. It's a big mess. This means this donkey is lost. He finds a cow or a bull running amongst a vineyard, tiptoeing through the tulips. Except he's not tiptoeing, he's running. It's not tulips, it's a vineyard. Clean the gulabash where we find an uncovered vessel in a garbage dump. Nobody would put a visible vessel in the garbage dump because the next time comes to put dark garbage, he's going to see it there. Hare, all of the above scenarios. Zuabeda, this is a lost object. Halacha says, when you take it, and you announce it. Gimel 3, Rochamere, he a donkey, a porter or a cow. Royim, Ba'ak or Kedarkam, they're just pasturing in an ordinary place, in a normal way. So what's the issue? Malayla, well, if it's at night, Hare, Zuabeda, that means this donkey or cow are lost. Because people don't have their donkeys and cows out at night. If Nesayayim, but if it's daybreak, or Baneshef, or dawn, twilight or dawn, the day is leaving or it's dawning, early or late, Sometimes people take their animal out late or early to beat the traffic. They don't want to use the carpool lane. But if he sees this animal hanging out three consecutive days <clears throat> after sunset or before or by twilight, this is a lost item. It's already three days this animal's lost. He sees a cow, a bull, running along the road. Well, it depends where it's running to. If it's heading to the city, this is not a lost item because he's running home. But if he's running out of the city, this is lost. Because people don't have their animals run to pasture. 
Here's an interesting scenario. What if somebody finds his animal pasturing amongst the vineyards? You know, a vineyard is not the best place to pasture. Why? Because he killed the vineyard. Because that can ruin the vineyard. The guy's got to munch up all the twigs of the vineyard and uh, no more vineyard. Chayiv Lahav, so he has to restore it. Not so much because the animal is in danger, but because the vineyard is in danger. Therefore, now comes a different law. Remember, we said that idolaters, non Jews, have a whole different value system of lost and found. Therefore, we do not apply these laws across the board to non Jews. What happens now if this vineyard belongs to a non Jew? Well, what's the deal? It's not considered lost. He does not restore it. However, if the culture there was that the idolaters see an animal trampling on their vines, they'll shoot the animal. Shoot first, ask questions later. And the poor animal, we're concerned with the safety of the animal. What do the animal do? If they see why would the guy kill the animal? What do you mean why I kill the animal? Because he ruined my vineyard. It's a good thing I only killed him. I could have done worse. Then let's treat it like a lost animal. But later he takes it to save the animal. Animal cruelty. Even if the culture there is that they would shoot the animal. If the culture is not that culture, then that's fine. I think that across the board, we treat non-Jewish objects the same way the non-Jewish culture treats it. Hey, what if he finds a cow wandering in the public domain? You go out here to Ventura Boulevard, you see a cow. It's in the fast lane. It depends where in the public domain. If it's outside the 2,000 cubits near the city, which means it's outside the city limits and more, that's a lost cow. You have to restore it. It was pasturing in the grass. Or it was in a barn that's not properly closed and locked down and guarded. But it's not necessarily going to get lost. It's, it's, it is lost and it's not lost. Well, you got, but you know what? Better don't touch it. Change the It's not a lost object. Motzatalis, if you found the garment, a cardam or an axe, beside her there, sitting at the side of a wall. Chances are somebody took it. Somebody put it there. Better it shouldn't be touched. But if you found him in a thoroughfare, he takes it and he announces, who lost a garment? Who lost an axe? Now we come to an interesting subject. We may not know that much about it because not many of us raise doves or have dove coats. I know in Newark I don't remember seeing too many dove coats. But Motsa Gezolis, if he found doves, young doves, their wings are tied together so they can't fly. And they're jumping around in unison near a fence, or near a stone wall, or in a lane, or in fields. Chances are somebody put them there and tied their wings together and they're jumping. There's a good possibility that their owners put them there. And if he did take them, he could keep them. Go identify a dove. This is my dove. How do you know his name is Herman? <laughs> Every dove's name is Herman. However, if it was tied in a special way, which could be a mark of distinction, like GM, mark of excellence, he has to announce it's lost and found. So also if he found them set into a particular location, then the location could be the sign. He's obligated to announce because the place could be a sign. What if he's in a garbage dump and he finds an object that was covered with garbage? Which means somebody probably put it there. Don't touch it. What if it's a garbage dump that usually is not cleaned up and it happens to be on his property? The guy says, you know what? It's time. Let's clean up the garbage. Even though he finds it covered, you can take it now and announce it. Why? Because nobody expected this garbage dump to be cleaned up. Also, there was a series of small utensils. A knife, a spit, or anything similar. Even if they were covered by a regular dump, he takes it and announces. Now comes a famous issue from the Gemara and the Mishnah. What if he finds scattered produce? If it was put there, it looks like it may have been put there, even though it's scattered. Well, you go by, don't touch it. It looks like it's fell. If you find small sheaves of grain in a public domain, sheaves of grain have no distinctive marks. If he finds cakes of pressed figs, or loaves of bread baked by a bakery, how do we know when loaves of bread are baked by a bakery? Because the bag says no. Just kidding. Because they're uniform. Because bakeries bake stuff the same way. Home baked is always different. Or somebody finds a string of fish, pieces of meat, boys. Maybe you know some raw wool which comes from the country, and bundles of flax. Well, the shame of scratches of purple wool. I don't know to keep them at the shame of because there's really no distinctive mark. I know the above. Yes, from Simon, but if there is, they told the take it and announce it. Even a sign that will ultimately be lost because it'll be tread upon again and again and again. Still, as long as you can see it, it is a sign. I'm just going to have a quick sip of tea here. I made a bracha earlier. Test. But if he finds home baked breads, loaves of breads, because it's a 
or wool that has been dyed by a craftsman, they all look the same. Kadayayin, pitchers of wine, drugs of wine, Kadayayin, or oil, and they all look the same. They're commercial. Chayavach is yes to announce them. I'm sorry. The opposite. He finds home-baked bread. Wool dyed by a craftsman, so it's unique. Jugs of wine or oil, not that was made commercial, but that is made privately. They have signatures on them and so on. He has to announce them. All of these do have marks of distinction. However, if the wholesale storage places of wine or oil were opened, and this is just one of many, then these are his. Because all these are marked. This becomes like bakery bread. They all have the same form, but there are so many. Bakery bread is the same. Yud, I'm a little nervous because we have the owner of a bakery sitting here and it makes me very nervous. But that was then, this is now. What if he finds small sheaves of wheat or what have you in a private domain? They look like it fell. They belong to him. They look like they were put down. He has to announce it. There's no sign. The location is in and of itself a sign. Even though it's not a set sign. If he found large sheaves, like it says in the Chumash with Yosef and his brothers, big sheaves, maybe he should have a private property, maybe he should have a public, and he announces 11 Mozart Eagle of the Seychei Choros. What if he finds a cake of pressed figs and in it there's a shard of something, clay, he finds a low, uh, a, a, I'm sorry, Mozart Eagle of the Seychei Choros, a loaf of bread of the Seychei Choros, in the loaf there's coins, uh, what are coins doing in a loaf of bread? Pieces of meat, a piece of meat, which looks different. Dog noshuch, a fish that was bitten into. Anything similar. These are unique and different, and these are marks of distinction. Because they have unique marks, he must announce. Who lost uh, bread with money in it? The guy put the money in it, in case he loses it. That the guy put a bite in his fish, so it should be a mark of distinction. The guy made his piece of meat look different. Next, you base 12 months What if somebody finds scattered fruit in the place where there is a grain heap after people took their produce home? The question is whether the owners abandoned it or they intended to return and collect it. If it's only a cob, which is a limited measure, in four cubits or more, so there's very little, he gets to keep it. Because the owner would not bother collecting the cob in this space, in the large space. If the cob was spread in a smaller space, in that case, you can assume the owner is probably coming back. Maybe the owner put it there. If it was half that amount, a cobayim or two cobayim, had three, two or three species. For example, if it had, for example, dates, sesame seeds, and pomegranates, kaleidos, suffolk, we're really not sure. The pikach, best la italy should take it, but not all, but if he did, ain't a high vachis, he does not have to announce you. Give a la mesit, if somebody finds a collection of fruit, a pile of fruit, they pay this bikli, or fruit in a container, a click of a shore, a clean container, high vachis, all of these have marks of distinction, but if he finds a utensil upon a pedis, and in front of the utensil, there is produce, hareil shalei ha pedis, then the produce has no mark of distinction. He gets to keep the produce. But the utensil, he has to take it in and out because it does have a mark of distinction. Because I can assume, well, the question is, if the utensil has a mark of distinction, can't you assume that the produce was in the utensil and fell? Well, maybe, but not necessarily. Because I can say, the utensil belongs to one person, and therefore I have to announce it. But the produce could belong to another person. And there's no sign. There's no mark of distinction. But if the way it's situated, it appears obvious that it's from the same person, he has to announce. Case for example, if the back of the utensil was to the front of the produce, which doesn't look like it fell out of that, because if it did, then the front of the Utensil would be towards the produce. This is his. He gets to keep the produce. But the front, the opening of the utensil was by the produce. We should suspect perhaps the produce came from this utensil. But if there was a lip to this utensil, even though the opening of the utensil is facing the produce, he gets to keep it. Why? Because the lip would have kept something in the utensil. And now there's nothing there. They fall out of this utensil. The lip would have kept something there. If some of the produce was in the utensil and some on the ground, here he has to announce the entire amount. What if somebody finds the Rambam's translation of the Mishnah is berries? Others have other translations. Berries from a tree. I feel a bit sad state. Even next to a berry bush or berry field, Ariel Shalei gets to keep them. Because people figure that once the berries hit the ground, they're not edible anymore. So also a fig, which is a fig tree, which is hanging over the road. And there are figs under it. 
Mutaris Mishum Gozo. They are permitted and it's not considered theft. Shateina, because figs of Koyetzebo are similar fruit, similar produce. In the Philosophy Nimesses, they become repulsive, they become disgusting when they drop to the ground and take on the dust and the mud. Mutaris Mishum Meister, they're not obligated for tithing. Abelzesim Bacharubim, however, olives and carobs, Koyetzebo and other foods, Asurim, are forbidden. Okay, tomorrow, dates. Shemashino Noruach, which the wind blew off, Mutaris, they're permissible, Shabalim Bacharubim, Bacharubim, because the owner again. Just forgave ownership. And this could be the assumption. However, that the owner were orphans. Orphans are not of majority age, therefore they can't really forgive anything because they're not mature enough. They can't just forgive something or, or abandon something. Assuming that it's forbidden because they do not have the capacity of abandoning. So also, if this field owner is known to be concerned, he can walk away long and he put a fence around the place of the trees, they can people by or he put some kind of flooring, some kind of net or whatever, so that anything that falls there, actually, he should be protected until he gathers them. Then it's obvious, so they are forbidden. Because with that act, he shows that he did not forgo ownership. Here's a very interesting law. A really bad cat. A dangerous cat. How do we know it's a dangerous cat? Because it acted dangerously. Because it has killed young children. And therefore the cat is a danger to society. Or others say it has maimed young children. In any event, it's a danger to society. Also, it is forbidden to hold on to this cat. you got to get rid of this cat. Therefore, if somebody comes and takes this cat, he's not stealing it. Because the guy has no right to hold on to it. There's no mitzvah to return it. Because the guy doesn't deserve to keep it. Even though, even though the cat's skin has value. So who says you have a right to take someone else's cat? You can make a few dollars from the cat skin. Doesn't matter. The law is this guy shouldn't be having his cat. Whoever finds it gets it. What does he do with it? He can't keep it, just like the first guy couldn't. He kills it, he gets to keep the skin. What if you find a dove near a dove cup? We learned earlier, how near is near? Within 50 cubits. You can assume it belongs to the owner of the dove cup. More than 50 cubits, that's the distance that a dove will travel. Find your keepers. Usually young doves do not hop more than 50 cubits. If you find it between two dove coats, it belongs to the closer one. What if it's literally centered in between the two dove coats? Let them divide it between the owners of the two. When the amount of doves in the two dove coats were the same. They both had 100. They both had 20. But if one had more and the other had less. There are two perspectives in law, and this we learn in quite a few places. There is distance, and then there is volume. You follow the majority, meaning the place that has more doves, even though it's a little further. Because if one dove coat had 100 doves, and the other had 10, and the 10 was closer, yes, it could be that this dove is from the 10. But it's more probable it's from the 100, because the numbers don't lie. End of chapter 15.